0: We got news, we got clips, what you really wanna know? Uh, entertaining guests, ain't no telling who you might see Entertaining yes, like it ain't telling who he might be You can say anything in your rap, if you really he Like bada boom and bada bada bow and bada bada beam If you join the show, then you might learn a little couple things Like how I'm tryna make this bar rhyme with positivity Like how I'm tryna say I'm unselfish with magnanimity This show might just change somebody's life with a possibility
1: Yeah, that's the word for it.
2: Man, I told
0: you this song was too long. We need to cut it a little bit. Just a little bit, you know, it's too long,
1: you feel And now, podcasting with pride from a downriver suburb of the greatest city in the world Detroit. Wednesday night. Welcome back to Bright Side of the Hump. We are here to get you on that glide to the weekend. It is February 1st, all Groundhog's Eve. But remember, I don't subscribe to those superstitions. Give that geezer old man winter the finger with me. And let's call it an even 28 days until winter is kaput on March 1st. Tonight's guest joins us from the beauty of Northern California, where he's plied his skills in show business for over 40 years. Scott Edwards worked with huge names in the comedy business and now hosts an extraordinarily successful podcast. First, though, you know I'm going to ask you for some help. Crisis Text Line provides support to people who are in a mental health crisis through access to counselors via text. Simply typing home, H O M E, to 741741 gets a person in crisis connected to a counselor who can share mental health resources with them. It's a wonderful, practical, life saving service that needs three things from us volunteers, money, and help getting the word out on social media. Go to the webpage for this podcast and click on the donate link, which takes you directly to the Crisis Text Line site where you can get all the details on how you can help. So do, please. BrightSiders, settle in for a tour of the golden age of stand-up comedy. Our docent this evening is Scott Edwards, comedian, producer, entrepreneur, and podcaster extraordinaire. In 1980, Scott opened his first comedy club in Sacramento, California. He went on to own a chain of comedy clubs over the next two decades, bringing acts like Gary Shandling, Jerry Seinfeld and Bob Saget to his stages, while also having acts like Dana Carvey, Paula Poundstone, and Brian Posehn cut their comedic teeth in his venues. He humbly refers to his career as 40 plus years on the fringe of show business. That lack of pretension is part of what makes him such a likable guy. He's authored three books and currently hosts the hilarious and informative podcast Stand Up Comedy, Your Host. And MC. This is another episode of Stand Up Comedy, your host and MC, celebrating 40 plus years on the fringe of show business. Stories, interviews, and comedy sets from the famous and not so
2: famous. Here's your host and MC, Scott Edwards. And this is just a little introduction to my podcast. As mentioned in the opening, we have Comedy by the Famous. Here's Jerry Seinfeld. Well, you call up the bank or you call up a big company and they've all got the same systems to keep you down, to keep you demoralized when you're trying to get help. charge. every time I call them, they put you on hold with the music. A lot of companies have this now, hold with music, you know that one? Where you call up and the music is playing, they put you on hold, and they figure he's got the music, we can leave him on there. (laughs) Operator left me on there 20 minutes. By the time she came back, I couldn't even remember what I wanted. (laughs) She says, can I help you, please? I said, yeah. I'd like to hear the rest of that Johnny Mathis song." And not so famous, great little short bit by Ronnie Kenney.
0: I was excited about doing this. I think I got too excited today. I did a uh, sit-up. Have you tried one of those lately? I got real lightheaded. I stopped that immediately, boy. I, I got up, grabbed a beer and a cigarette, and laid back down again. I'm kind of an exercise guy. You are what you eat. What's that supposed to mean? Do I look deep fried, do you people? (laughs) Got to get new friends. My friends are always bragging about their exercise. They're always going, Hey, Ronnie, I ran five miles
2: today. (laughs) That's great. I own a car. (laughs) I drove 40 miles with a beer between my legs. All right. (laughs) And every other week, we have a terrific interview with a professional entertainer. Here's a short bit from the interview with famous Russian comic Yakov Smirnov. Real quick, what was it like doing comedy in a communist country? Um, well, it was challenging. Uh, however, we did not know any better. So um, the Communist Party was in charge of all the censorship and comedy was one of those aspects that were, you know, they had to control. Otherwise, it was too dangerous because it can create an insurrection. So this set that we're going to listen to right now was recorded in 1983. And It's really funny stuff. It's from a headlining set. It's just a portion, but I know you'll enjoy it. So sit back and enjoy some tremendous stand-up comedy by the one and only Dana Carvey.
0: People get hostile like that, don't they? I'm in a laundromat the other day. I asked this guy where the detergent machine was. He thought I was trying to hassle him. I just said, where is it? And he goes, hey, hey, look at me. Am I your goddamn mommy? Huh? Am I your mommy? Every time you got a goddamn question, you're going to come to me, pal? I don't like getting hassled. You know what I mean? Huh? Huh? I just got my hair cut at Ron's, and I'm pissed off, all right? <laughs> so I looked at him and said, thanks for sharing. Thank you. <laughs> Did you put an editor in for a roommate? Yeah, I just had a six pack of butt. I love you, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> same laundry. I love people who will tell you their life story that you don't know. You know, these people, you meet them in the elevators, wherever. Same laundry, man. Same day, this woman walks up to me. I said hi. expect hi back. And she goes, Oh, hi. How you doing? You know, my name's Sue. Do you like the name Sue? I like it. I don't know. Do you think I'm fat? Maybe I should lose some weight. Do you think I should? Maybe I'll cut my hair. Maybe I'll permit. I don't know. I'll see what Ron says. I don't know what I'll do. I don't know. You know, my boyfriend, see, he's so cute. He's got herpes. He sells cocaine. I like him a lot. I don't know why. Oh, I met this cute guy, Greg. you think I should marry him? I like name, Greg. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't even know when I look at her and go, hey, hey, what? Am I your goddamn mommy? <laughs> <laughs> Every time you got a goddamn question, come
1: to me. You know, listening to Dana Carvey reminded me of one of my favorite characters he played. It was in the movie Moving with Richard Pryor. Dana plays Brad, a man with multiple personality disorder who gets hired to drive Arlo Pears' sporty Saab from New Jersey to Boise, Idaho. For the whole trip, the condition of the car is at peril by whichever personality is behind the wheel. And by the time it gets to Boise, the car looks like something from Thunderdome. When Pryor's character Arlo asks how the car got destroyed... Dana's character has now morphed into a Southern California bro dude and says, Brad probably loaned the car to the Pope. Don't let the hat fool you, man. Pope's a crazy fucker. Probably blessed the car, got wasted, and drove it off a fucking cliff. It's always been a marvel how he can adeptly fall into impression after impression and still does it on his Fly on the Wall podcast. Without further ado, from the voice talent factory of the cosmos, like manna to your craving ears, please welcome Scott Edwards to Bright Side of the Hump. Scott, you had Dana on stage well before he auditioned on SNL, right?
2: Oh, yeah. No, definitely. And thanks for having me on, John. Hey, uh, Dana was one of the guys that came out of the Bay Area and hit my stage Early on, this is in the uh, like 1980, 1981, and uh, several years before he got set out. We were very good friends, and he was working for me one week, and after the show, we were hanging out in the hot tub, having cocktails after the show, and he goes, man, I just had the most bizarre phone call, and it was, and I'm, we're like, okay, great, you know. And he goes, I'm excited, I'm nervous, but I just got off the phone with Lauren Michaels, and he wants me to fly out to New York to audition on Monday. And he's telling me this on a Thursday night, and he had just gotten the call. It was amazing that we could share that moment with him. And he was really excited and, and really nervous at the same time. It was really uh, fun. Amazing. Tell me...
1: How, how, when, and why, and where you got started in the comedy business. I know that's a lot of questions, but, you know, un- unpack that for me, if you
2: will. <laughs> well, back in uh, 1980, I was selling life insurance and absolutely hating it. Uh, when you're 24, you don't feel like you're ever going to die. So it was. Uh, I was good at it, but it was, it was not really a fun job. And I was on vacation, and I went by the uh, comedy store in Westwood. It was a satellite location next to UCLA. And I just happened to go in with uh, my then-girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, uh, soon-to-be ex-wife, and we saw Dave Coulier, Sandra Bernhardt, George Wallace, and a number of other comics. And I was just blown away at how fun, how entertaining. And I should preface this that I've already started – a couple other companies by this point. So I kind of knew what to do. I stayed around and I talked to the comics, I talked to the club manager, and on the six hour drive back to Sacramento, I decided I was gonna quit my job. I went bankrupt, so I got rid of all my debt. And uh, a few months later, after doing some more research and wheeling and dealing my way into the banquet room of a nice restaurant, for free I should say, I opened up Laughs Unlimited, Sacramento's all comedy showroom, and when I did, it was August of 1980, and it was the 12th full-time comedy club in the country. Quite a leap. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, uh, um, you know, one of those things that you can only do when you're 24. You know, you're you're excited, you're 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 trying to find your path in life. You want to do things that make you money but are also fun. And I hit the jackpot. I got to tell you, John, I killed it.
1: That's amazing. When you're 24, you're, uh, you're too young to know any better. And, and that's a fortunate thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you just, uh, I'd already started a couple other companies. My first one when I was 17, another one when I was 19. So I kind of knew what to do to get the, the company going. But you know, every time I start a company, it's something new and different. So I have to research it. I talk to the people in the industry. And I really lucked out meeting Dave Coulier because he introduced me to Bob Saget. And Bob Saget kind of took me under his wing, he introduced me to Gary Shanling and Ray Romano and Jerry Seinfeld. And these guys all helped me build a foundation for a very successful club. And I should add, Uh, That club, Laughs Unlimited, is still operating today, 42 years later, and I don't own it, but it's still going. So it was one of the first clubs in the country, and now it's one of the longest running operations in stand-up comedy. Well, that's a monument to you. That's fantastic. Uh, I know this is a... Well, I think.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, sir. Uh, I know this is a terrible question to ask you, but can you tell me about some of the funniest sets you saw in your clubs?
2: Yeah, that is difficult. I mean, you got to keep in mind, I was doing uh, something like eight to 10 shows a week, and I was the host and MC 52 weeks a year, and I did it for 21 years. So I've literally seen thousands and thousands of shows, I've been blessed by working with some of the best in the business. But some of my favorites were uh, Bobby Slayton, the Pitbull of comedy. Um, I'm One of my, the best, Larry Miller. Everybody in your audience, go Google Larry Miller and you go, oh, that guy. He's been in thousands of movies and TV shows, but as a stand-up comic, he had some of the best bits ever. His 12 stages of drinking is, is famous. Uh, But I also got to work with Harry Anderson from the TV show Night Court. He was a terrific friend and a a talented uh, uh, and unique uh, magician. Uh, But, I mean, there's really been so many. Jay Leno was one of our regulars. Jerry Seinfeld, Ray Romano, Paula Poundstone. I even had uh, Ellen DeGeneres on my stage, but she was only a feature act. This was way before her fame.
1: You mentioned Harry Anderson. Have you seen the Night Court reboot with his daughter playing the judge?
2: No, I have not seen it yet, and you just educated me. I didn't know that was his daughter. How could he have such a good-looking daughter? He was such a scrub. No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, genes work in mysterious ways, Scott. (laughs) The red challenge flag has come out. I guess Hollywood's going to question what Metz said there. Hollywood is challenging the suggestion that Harry Anderson's daughter is acting in the reboot of Night Court. The play is under further review. Heineken, what beer drinkers drink when they don't have any taste buds? We're back. Let's go down to the field and find out the ruling. The ruling on the field is overturned. Harry Anderson's daughter is not acting in the reboot of Night Court. We've just got word that the confusion here was based on the fact that Harry Anderson played the character Judge Harry Stone on the original Night Court. In the reboot of Night Court, there is a character named Judge Abby Stone, who is the fictional daughter of Judge Harry Stone. Judge Abby Stone is played by Melissa Rauch, who, to the best of our knowledge, is no relation to harry anderson
2: i think i speak for all america when i say hang in there Mets." anyone can make that mistake yeah yeah no that's awesome i didn't know that i haven't seen the show yet but i'm uh, looking forward to checking it out in fact i was just talking to the manager of uh, Marsha warfield who played the in the court she was one of our early acts and Marsha and i go way back and then she got into television so i haven't talked to her in decades but uh uh, seeing that show rebooted reminded me of her, and she's still out performing.
1: We'll go on the other end of the spectrum. Did you have comedians you saw in your club who really struggled and then turned out to make it?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, everybody struggles in the world of stand-up comedy at first. I mean, Jay Leno, you know, has bombed on stage. Jerry Seinfeld has had rough sets. Uh, Dana Carvey was more of a musician than a comic. Uh, Bob Saget uh, did a lot of music in the stand-up comedy, which a lot of people don't know, he was a pretty good musician. And uh, they all go through those trials and tribulations and what's great about my club, Laughs Unlimited, it was a place where they could make mistakes and work on material and hone their acts before going back to LA where somebody might see them, right? So it was an out-of-town club but it was a professional room. We, you know, it was a nice uh, theater with uh, good lighting, good sound. They could work on material, interact with the audience, and but they could try new stuff and bomb and not worry about some famous producer from Warner Brothers seeing them. So Sacramento really had a strong position in show business back in those days because a lot of acts, uh, in fact, a lot of acts that came out from New York, including Larry Miller, uh, Yakov Smirnoff, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Paul Reiser, came by my club before they went to L.A. You know, I, in fact, my very first opening act in August of 1980 was Gary Shandling, and he was coming out of Phoenix, Arizona. This was years before his movie and TV fame. Amazing. Uh, and- yeah, it was a lot of fun.
1: You're gonna hear me say "amazing" and "awesome" a lot, don't it?
2: it yeah, I, I heard your fans have an issue with that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. And- I
2: was listening to you <laughs> a couple of your shows, and you shared that you say "amazing" all the time. You you want to hear one more amazing story that I think your audience would get a kick Certainly. out of? Certainly. When it comes to name dropping, I'm I'm really good at this. Um, in uh, late 1980, I'd only been open a few months. Bob Saget said, Hey, a friend of mine needs to uh, work on a comedy set. Can I bring him up? And I said, Sure, Bob, anything for you. Bob brings up this young man. He was on a new TV sitcom and he had to do some stand up comedy on the TV show, but he didn't know anything about stand up. So he came to my club and I taught him, you know, where to look, how to use the mic, and, you know, the, the physical aspects of being a comic. Bob Saget was writing material for him. We helped him hone about a five-minute set. He went back, did it on the TV show, and we got to see it about a week and a half later. Oh, by the way, that was Bosom Buddies was a TV show, and the person was Tom Hanks.
1: (laughs) That's a big one. That's a big one. Yeah,
2: Tom Hanks. Now, nobody, you know, he's not Tom Hanks that he is now. Right. He was this, you know, had this first sitcom, Bosom Buddies. Yeah it would, it had just come out. So it hadn't even caught on. He wasn't any, you know, it was just another guy actor, Right. but it was, uh, I got a chance to work with him and, and he was on my stage. So who could say that Tom Hanks was here. Ho, ho,
1: ho. Exactly. You're going to hear me reference Tom Hanks in a, in a slight degree later, but I got to tell you when you drop that name, Scott, you got to be careful. Don't try to bend over and pick it up. You'll hurt your back on that one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I got to tell you, it was
1: amazing. It's awesome. It's amazing. So now I'm going to go into, to, this is like a morning uh, radio host type question. I feel terrible. I don't know who the hell wrote these things. But, uh, hey, hey, Scott, could you tell me what some of the wildest occurrences from your career are?
2: Well, I would say one of the scariest, Well, not re- it wasn't really scary. So not only did I open the and run the club. When you have a nightclub, you're also a bar and a restaurant, right? Because you have to serve food and you're serving drinks and you're dealing with drunks. We didn't have too much of a problem with it. But I was also the bouncer because I was the biggest guy and I was the owner. So I was responsible. Well, one time, uh, we it was a Saturday night and a great comedy team, Mac and Jamie, were there. And Mac and Jamie went on to have a comedy break, their own TV show. Uh, very funny guys, uh, still out there working And uh, Mac and Jamie were uh, about to go on stage and we had these like 14 guys come in. They were drunk, it was just guys, it was like a bachelor party. They'd already been out drinking and they came into the show and we came in and we sat them and immediately we knew this wasn't gonna work. So um, I decided before I did the show to deal with it, I called the police because they knew me. I mean I had a real good rapport with the local PD. and they knew I never had any problems. So when I said, uh, I've got a potential problem, they showed up and one of the officers walked in with me and I went up to these uh, you know 14, 16 drunk guys and, and you know big college like foot it was like a football team and said, you know you're gonna have to leave. And we gave them their money back and stuff, but uh, they were not happy. Made it clear they were not happy, but because the officer was with me, uh, they didn't make too much of a stink. But what they didn't know is that as they left my club, the police had lined up every 10 feet, two officers, almost like a parade line, John, and paraded these guys out. And imagine the intimidation these drunk guys must have felt going through this line of police officers. I'm not kidding. There was like 10 of them and walked them all the way out of the club and my audience cheered the comics cheered everybody was so happy they were gone and then the tail end of that story is the police let them get in it turns out they were all in a motorhome. let them get in their motor home and leave and two blocks later, they pulled him over and busted him for DUI.
1: <laughs> Fantastic.
2: Yeah. That is justice. Oh, it right was there. it was just, so that was kind of a weird moment that I'll never forget. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, my job, a lot of club owners would have just let that stuff happen because it's money. They're selling drinks and yep. they've got, a, you know, 14, 15 people paying 20 bucks a head. That's a lot of money but for me I, I i wasn't a great businessman for me it was all about the show about the comedy about the audience and in this case i'd rather have given up the money and had a good show uh than not and years later i had the comedy team of mac and jamie and other employees remember that story and thank me saying it was one of the uh best moves a business owner could make but a difficult one financially but uh, a good move
1: commendable sir that's outstanding did you ever have to fire comics I don't know if that's the right word I guess they're kind of you know they're independent contractors coming in your place probably but it, did you ever have to let any of them go and and what are some of the reasons that might come up for
2: a club owner well I only had to do it twice um, and they were both named Bill how imagine that. So uh, there's a really talented, I mean, he's a really famous, he could buy me a hundred times over, he's rich, he's famous, but everyone's heard of Bill Maher, the political <laughs> comic. And this was back, he was early in his career, and I introduced him, and he'd worked my club before, and he was always a, a, a kind of an erudite, kind of attitude-ish, yeah. uh, you know, nobody's worthy to smell my feet kind of guy. But, you know, he was a funny comic and he was coming up through the ranks. And I introduced him, it was like a Thursday night or Wednesday night. I mean, he'd only, it was like his second night of the, usually they ran Tuesday through Sunday. And it was Wednesday night and he went out on stage and Bill Maher was such an asshole. He would, uh, (laughs) he was talking about politicians using names and people out of DC and people in the legislature. And he was trying to do these funny political jokes. Well, it's Wednesday night, there's like 50 people in the audience and they don't relate to what he was doing. So they weren't laughing. So about halfway through the show, he stopped and he goes, oh, you guys are all stupid. You guys don't get it here in Hickville, Sacramento, and he walked off stage. I went backstage and I said, you're out of here, you're fired and and I didn't I only paid him for the two nights sent his ass home and never used him again and of course he went on to fame and fortune but his disrespect for my club and my audience was more than I could stand for the other only other one was a guy named Bill Kirkenbauer, who had a pretty long career in comedy n- not famous at all but he just you know I was paying him a ton of money because there was a lot of potential and he was just not funny and, um, I, you know, when you're counting on a headliner to entertain an audience for 45 minutes to an hour and they can't pull it off, you know, but those are the only two guys I ever fired. That's a fair question, John. I mean, I was in the business 21 years, a uh, lot of shows only having two sent homes. Not bad.
1: That's pretty great. You did not have a quick hook.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, John, you were asking about fun moments. Uh, Early, early on, it was a uh, Thursday night. There was maybe 18 people in the audience, right? Really small, but, you know, you do a show no matter what. And Gary Shandling was on stage, and he was doing pretty well. And a guy gets up and goes to the restroom. And Gary stops his show and goes, man, that's too high a percentage. Come with me. And he took the other 17 people, and he... Followed this guy into the men's room. The poor guy's at the urinal. Here come men and women, all 17, pack into the bathroom. He stands right behind the guys. He's doing his business and just goes on with his act like nothing was wrong. You know, so I was in Joe's bar. And it was so oh. funny. It only happened once in the 21-year history of the club. But that was uh, hilarious.
1: Oh, and just brilliant from a brilliant yeah. mind, right? To yeah, read yeah. to read the moment to that degree.
2: <laughs> it was it was uh, uh, crazy. Gary was a really good friend. He worked my club a lot. Uh, there was one time he was about to do a Tonight Show, and it's it's again it's like a Thursday night, maybe sixty people in the audience, and he goes, "Hey, I'm going to be on the Tonight Show." Next Tuesday can I try some jokes this is about halfway through a set after he kind of proved who he was and the audience loves that kind of behind the curtain feel and they go yeah yeah he pulls out these eight by ten cards and just starts reading material and then if it one didn't get a response he'd throw it over his head well that one's out and you know or if it got a titter he would go up oh, I gotta work on that one and he and he actually worked on about uh, three minutes of material. For the tonight show but the audience was in on it so they loved it and i loved it and then you know the next tuesday we see him on the tonight show and he's doing those jokes i mean that was a special moment for me and the audience oh that's fantastic you know he
1: was uh, he did some guest hosting for johnny and he was better than jay leno at guest hosting you know when he was the guy in there replacing johnny on you know the nights johnny was off which became like two out of every three for a while there uh, he was better than all the other people who did it. And it shows when he does the
2: Larry Sanders show, <laughs> you know, even though it's fiction. Oh, exactly. You know. it, exactly. You know, as like you said, that's art imitating life. Right. And what was great about Gary was that not only did he have a quick comic mind, but he under I think you mentioned the term earlier, he understands the situation and knows how to, Work it. And I think that that was a benefit to him um, as a host, not only on the Larry Sanders show, but also when he was guest hosting, is that he can go with the flow. He can let the moment uh, happen. And I think a gift that um, Johnny Carson had that Gary was able to share is that when you have a guest on your show, let the guest shine. Right. It's kind of like a podcaster. You know, I've done uh, something like 70 interviews so far. And in the beginning, I used to talk a lot and I realized, of course, my wife's in my ear going, shut the hell up. Uh, but it's, it, she's, you know, the, she's correct. When you're on a TV show and you're, you got a guest or you're on a podcast and you have a guest, the whole point is the audience wants to hear the guest. And so Johnny Carson was great at asking the right questions And then shutting up and listening. And that's uh, not easy to do for people like us. Right. Right, Absolutely. You
1: don't put out a podcast or do anything performative because you don't want people to say, oh, look at that guy. You know, it's a hey, here's another great thing about me. kind of of situation but you have to fight against that a little bit to try to highlight the the guest it makes it a hell of a lot more fun for the guest
2: well we know you're already a huge star in detroit we just need to you know slowly (laughs) introduce you to the rest of the country
1: (laughs) so doug stanhope's uh, uh he's not a new comedian he's been around 30 years but he's my favorite comedian he always has bits that are kind of negative about comedy club owners and, and bookers, not not all the time, but you know just people he's run into in 30 years of comedy. So my question to you is, how do you keep a good relationship with a talent? Because I just don't think there's any way that you were in it for 21 years if you're an asshole.
2: Right. Well, there, there were a couple assholes that lasted a long time, but I think that the secret to longevity in the business, if I might share my two cents, is that you have to treat the entertainment, the talent with respect. And I know that that seems like obvious, but I there's so many club owners, and what's even worse on the open mic amateur level, there's so many bars and, and business owners that think of comics as just this week's meat, right? They, they don't really care about the entertainment. They don't really care about the, the how difficult it is to be a standup comic, because you have to write original material then you have to be able to present it. Then you have to be able to do that in front of strangers. It's one of the most difficult jobs there is. And yet a lot of club owners treat them disrespectfully, you know, go up, do your freaking few minutes and get out of here. And uh, it's just kind of sad. And he, uh Stanhope is right. There's a lot of really bad people that run bars and restaurants and, and nightclubs that don't treat the talent. And this is the same with musicians and and other entertainers. They don't always get the respect they deserve. I think I was successful because I was taught, I was trained by Bob Saget and Gary Shandling and George Wallace, the king of Las Vegas, uh, that you have to treat them a certain way and with a certain amount of respect and you're going to get it back tenfold. Now, there's always you know, asshole comics that, that break that rule. And there's there's going to be, you can be the nicest club owner in the world and you're still going to make mistakes. But overall, I, I think that's the difference. I'll give you two quick examples. The the mother and father of stand-up comedy are Bud Friedman and Mitzi Shore. Mitzi Shore ran the comedy store. Bud Freeman ran the improv. And they were not easy people. They were tough. But it was tough love on comics there was always respect but you had to be a pro if you were going to work for them my club was more of a show you know uh, uh, I always akin it to university you had to do a few open mics in some gritty club or bar then come to my club hone your act turn your lump of coal into a diamond then you go to New York or L.A. And that's where you got to shine. You were like AAA, Right, right. Exactly. We're the minor league. And when you're when you make the show in baseball, everybody knows what that means. You're at the improv or the ice house or the comedy store or catch a rising star in New York. And even though they are showcase clubs, they're showcase clubs for professionals. And being a professional could take months to years.
1: So if someone were considering starting a comedy club today, what would you tell them, Scott?
2: Don't start a comedy club today. <laughs> I got out of the business in the late 90s and put my place up for sale and was, was out of it by uh, the end of uh, uh, 2001 because I felt there was a change coming in both the audience and the comics. Mostly, though, with the audience. And look what we're dealing with today in this kind of counterculture woke society that it used to be that people could laugh at themselves. You know, somebody like Don Rickles can go up and rip on every ethnicity there is, and everybody knew, hey, we're all humanity, we're all in this for fun, we're here to be entertained, and it's a joke. And these days, you know, you comment on some guy's ugly sweater, and somebody across the room gets offended because they (laughs) love (laughs) wool.
1: (laughs) Ah, That's a great analogy. Do you think the format, like comedy clubs as a format, works with the way everyone consumes all forms of media? Uh, that's
2: a great question. Uh, uh, ding, 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 ding. Good job. Uh, here's the difference. Back in the day, we did a. We were a professional room, so we had a three-act format. It was a two-hour show, first-acted 15 minutes, second act did 20 to 30 minutes. And the headliner was expected to do 45 minutes to an hour. And to your point in this day of short attention span theater, people, um, if they're not, something's not happening within 30 to 60 seconds, they start getting nervous and reaching for their phone. And that's why there's a success on Instagram reels and, in tick People just want to, they only, they don't make time for really anything. And it's not just in entertainment. It's also a challenge in, in people at work, you know, that it's hard for them to focus. You know, what do you mean I have to work eight hours in a day? What? <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's, it's really kind of sad and I'm an older guy. So I, I, and I worked my ass off, uh, you know, my whole life, a, a number of different jobs. So I don't get it. But uh, my niece and nephew or my grandkids, uh, it's easy to see that their focus is difficult to keep. What do you, what do you think, John? What's, what's the future of entertainment and everything if nobody can focus for more than a minute? It's grim. In many
1: ways, Uh, I don't have any kind of recipe that would be optimistic. And, you know, I try to find the bright side of things. Right. Uh, I think that it will it will change to be some kind of direct broadcasting. You know, I think you're going to see people who are funny on TikTok live or Facebook live or whatever platform live performing and that's how they're going to make their money. Like, it's probably not going to be in a club with drinks and, you know, that kind of stuff. My wife and I are going to a <laughs> club tonight to see, ironically, Scott Sice, And he became famous uh, through TikTok, not through stand-up comedy. I think he was doing stand-up before he did TikTok. But he became famous by doing these bits on TikTok where he's like the angry person in retail who gets asked you know, infinite number of dumb questions by customers. And then he, you know, answers them in a very direct way. I think that that's gonna be the way that people consume comedy. And I think that that isn't good for the future of comedy clubs. So I think your your wisdom is sage in that, maybe that's not your best business to go into.
2: Well, I'm gonna give you homework and I want you to report back to your listening audience. Everybody pay attention. You're gonna go out and see somebody that is used to entertaining in 20 and 30 second clips. I'm gonna be fascinated to see what happens when they have to do half an hour or more of stand up, And if that character and that material and that presentation can hold. So will you do that? Will you come back and tell us? 100%. All right, I wanna give you a quick side story. Yeah. Uh, it's so funny you mentioned that because there's been many instances where somebody's got half a million, a million followers on TikTok doing little comedy things and some corporationals pay them $10,000 to come and entertain their 1,000 employees. The guy shows up or the girl shows up and guess what? They don't have a freaking act. Right. All they have are these little... 20 30 second blurbs it doesn't work with a live audience it doesn't work with a 1000 people and they bomb horribly but guess what they got their 10 grand they don't give a crap right. and i i just it's so sad that that's what people think entertainment is you know we sound old here we sound old. We may have to move, but let's <laughs> that's so hey. funny yeah, uh, but- you're a young man but uh uh yes we we definitely don't fit into this Uh, you know, teenager, 20 something, uh, you know, I hate to give him more plugs, but TikTok, Instagram, 60 second world. Yeah. So speaking of that though, ironically, what got you into podcasting? (laughs) Well, that's actually a good story. Thanks for asking, John. You ask great questions. Thank you for having me on the bright side of the hump. Uh, So I had, over 40. Uh, so I still produce shows. I've done uh, two TV series. I was on radio. I've done several large sold out concerts with people like Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno, Yakov Smirnoff, even Carvey did one. And I've been producing comedy events for 40 years. I still do fun- a few fundraisers a year. And, uh, I had sat down in 2018, 2019, and I wrote a book about my 40-plus years on the fringe of show business because, of course, Hollywood and New York are the, uh, the hub. so Sacramento is really the fringe. And I got done, and I was very proud of myself, and my, my, my wife took one look at it. She goes, no one's going to read your stupid book. <laughs> she goes, you should do a podcast. And I'm like, what's a podcast? And of course I knew what a podcast was, but I never listened to one. And uh, so I researched it and I started listening to a few podcasts, I researched it. And curiously enough, about uh, a month before COVID hit, so we're talking February of 19, I started my podcast, Stand Up Comedy, your host and MC. And the name comes from, my partner came up with the name, a friend of mine. He was my partner at Laughs Unlimited he always introduced me, and I was always introduced each and every night for 21 years, here's your host and MC, Scott Edwards, right? So my podcast, Stand Up Comedy, your host and MC, is a celebration of those 40 years in on the fringe of show business, and instead of sharing it in a book, I've been sharing the stories like I have with your audience today on my podcast, But what I do is I I actually own a lot of material from my TV shows. I did a comedy album back in the day uh, for you young people and albums about like a 10 inch round piece of plastic. (laughs) Uh, And uh, uh, I share actual stand up comedy sets from back in the day of all these people we've mentioned, plus many, many more. And then I interview uh, professional comics, uh, Hollywood agents, uh, people that used to work for me, um all kinds of show business people and those interviews along with the stand-up comedy have made for you know what i hope is a entertaining podcast we just hit uh john you might find this exciting we just hit eighty-five thousand downloads so uh but that's in two years i mean it takes time that's
1: fantastic but it's worthwhile like uh in in i'll I'll definitely talk about this in a few seconds, but uh, it, it's so worth listening to your podcast. It's just like a a tour through comedy history. It's just fantastic. I do want to ask you real quick about your TV show. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Oh, no. So back in the 80s, this is, again, everybody needs to remember that um, when I opened my club in nineteen eighty, stand-up comedy was not a known entertainment format. It was kind of like the break between strippers at a club or between jazz bands right it was not very well you know the store had opened just a few years earlier the improv catch a rising star had been going for maybe just a couple years when i opened my club but by 1985 86 uh, is what started what i call the rock and roll wave of stand-up comedy So when I opened, there was 12 clubs in the country. By 1986, it was like Starbucks. Every freaking disco turned into a comedy club, right? They were everywhere. Well, then it hit TV. People might remember shows like Evening at the Improv and stuff like that. So um, back then, there was only four TV channels. This is pre-cable. Okay, uh, how do I explain that to the young people? Uh, (laughs) Now there's like 400 channels, right? Back then, there was four and it was ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox. Those were the only channels. And they had an obligation to provide local um, presentations for their, for their part of the, like for me, it's Northern California. So I had an opportunity to do a one-hour TV special with the Fox network uh, that I produced and directed and, and hosted. Actually, I didn't host it. Willie Tyler and Lester, the ventriloquist hosted that one. And then after that, that was a one-time, one-hour show. But um, the ABC affiliate saw that, wanted to do a regular show. So we did a show called uh, Just Laughs, because the name of my club was Laughs Unlimited. So it was just called Laughs, or Live at Laughs. And it was a half-hour comedy show that ran for uh, uh, 18 shows. And then uh, a year went by, and ABC didn't want it anymore, but CBS picked it up locally, and we changed it to Uh, live, almost live at Laughs Unlimited. And we did another uh, 14 half-hour shows for that. So uh, it was really fun for me because I was the talent coordinator on the TV shows. I was the host on the Fox special. It was Willie Tyler and Lester, the ventriloquist. And I got to get behind the camera. I got to direct. I went into the editing booth. It was a really exciting time. I mean, I have to be honest with you, John, getting into comedy fulfilled so many um, dreams of mine as as a young person, you know, getting on the radio, getting on TV, producing, directing, um, being the talent coordinator. I mean, I really have been blessed.
1: I read in an article where you were interviewed, where you kind of mentioned that, that all the other things that came from it, from a from a career slash financial standpoint, were secondary compared to the experiences. And I think most of us should probably live our lives that way, if you have the opportunity.
2: Well, and you're, you're singing to the choir here because I always think that, um, and I mentioned it earlier, I never did anything for the money and I've not been—I mean, I've been rich a couple times. I've been bankrupt a couple times. Uh, I've kind of followed that Trump path of uh, <laughs> riches and failure, but mostly failure. I mean, I did a lot of stupid things, but were really fun. So, like uh, in the mid '90s, I was doing pretty well with the comedy clubs. I at that point I had a chain of them. I had three comedy clubs, two restaurants, and a couple art galleries, and I was doing pretty well financially and I bought a submarine and launched it in Monterey, California. (laughs) What could go wrong? Yeah, it was a huge uh, tourist submarine called the Nautilus 4, and I put it in Monterey. Well, the water's too cold there. Algae bloom was an issue. We had to pay a a scuba diver to keep the windows clean all the time so that the (laughs) tourists could see the sea otters and the sea lions, and I lost my ass. Yeah. It was a huge financial loss. But guess what? I owned a fricking submarine. I got to drive it. I got to interact with the people on my boat. It was, it was incredible. And then right after that, I uh, bought a beach shack in Hawaii. Uh, anybody knows the big island at Kona, at the King Kamehameha Hotel, there's a beach shack right on the beach. And I owned that for five years. And I lost my ass on that. But guess what? I could fly over to Hawaii four or five times a year, spend a few weeks, sit there selling sunscreen to half-naked young ladies. Uh, Did I mention I was single? And it was a great experience, a huge financial disaster, but I had fun. There you have it. And everybody should, I think, John, you're right. People should, you know, it's not just about making a living. You got to enjoy your life a little.
1: Well, thank you so much, Scott. Your career is fascinating, almost Gumpian in some aspects, and you celebrate it in the perfect way with your can't-miss podcast. Stand-up comedy, your host and MC, You got to check it out, Bright Siders,
2: but only if you want to enjoy yourself. Oh, that's so well put, and it's been such a pleasure to be on the bright side of the hump with you, John Metz. I know it's Metzger, but you go by Metz, right? Yeah, I do. And you're a, a great... Uh, podcast host and i know that your audience is building and growing and it's just been an honor being on your show and in someday i'll be in detroit and be able to stand next to you the god of podcast
1: <laughs> thank you so much all right we are on that glide to the weekend now bright siders finish off your week well But before you do, please give us a good rating and share us on social media or dinner parties or online at the grocery store or Bureau of Motor Vehicles or wherever you see fit to spread the good word for us. I appreciate you listening. And as always, stay positive and keep looking for the bright side of things. You dig
2: it, do it. And if you really dig it, do it twice. (laughs) Yo, bring that fire, trench baby.
0: One Hey, fuck all the talking, you want me? Come give me my niggas, don't care if y'all the niggas towing. He wanna argue and text when I catch on my side, man, the story be different in person. I'm trying to stay out that way with just me and the gang, I be busy, I'm running up tokens. Fuck all the distance, just send me the Eddie and my niggas slide to something like lotion. Fat, 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 556s, five, five, he got the leaning like he off the potion. He on the floor, steady begging for life, he was coughing up blue while we laughing and joking. I'm really sliding in something that's stolen, I had a talk talking, my brody, I'm chosen. I'ma get rich and I swear I'ma show him he said keep rapping, so I'ma keep going. Exploring the city and getting it pop we scatter it now like a human of roaches fuck all the hoes bro i'm trying to stay focused it ain't no love i ain't showing emotion broke all the body and he just been itching when we in the street we just caught in a rolling something like windows we slide and they open the boys who the and soaked them fucking with hoes and me thinking with dicks bro i guess you ain't heard about medicine she wrote it chilling with demons asking for free if a bag in the air do you know they get on it never stay like forever they posted. and i remember them mice You know they're not lights nice, but i swear we ain't never had motion caught him at night he was at a green light but he knew if He grabbed me the doctor i saw him get in that room and start talking and folding i was digging I'm getting thugging in love with that money. My paper was taking the folders. I'm on my way to the top, but I keep getting stopped. Cause the devil can grab my shoulder. I be up thinking that night, so confused about life. It had changed ever since I got out Fuck that, you got your pipe. Hop out there, up and start upping and He got the running from moves in his life. Thirties and forties, I'm tired of talking. So don't bring bodies it's on my like. Coming to shoot, I ain't coming to fight. You just be talking and you never bothered. If you really bothered, I'm coming at night. Shout out your buddy, he next to the angels. And he really bigger than all of the fights I gotta switch it, yeah, I'm towing the dike. Riding the shockers is getting to Money I come from a struggle and riding bikes. Me and my brother we forever thuggin', you know we the toughest. You rolling the dice.